you don't have to try and shoot the moon with your first business or like any business. If you really want to be an entrepreneur, first establish the launch pad. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? On today's episode, I have Sam Shepler. So I know Sam because we're on a Slack channel with some other business owners and agency owners, and he's just constantly adding value. So I thought it was time to bring him on. And he has a really impressive story. He first started his career launching essentially like a full purpose video agency, essentially got burned out, was able to sell it. And then from that, he went on a tear. He started a productized service called Testimonial Hero, took that from idea to $4 million in sales, and has also hired a general manager and fired himself from that business. He then went on to acquire Productize and Scale, which is an e-product platform, and is really just getting started there. This is a really fun episode where we talk about his journey, what he's learned along the ways, the ups and downs as far as doing an agency, a productized service. But we also talk about this idea of a launchpad business. For anyone that's looking to do their own thing, why you shouldn't go for that moonshot, but instead go for something with a higher likelihood of success. And he talks about how he's been able to do that. So really hope you enjoy this episode. There's a lot of good stuff in here, but we'll get to the conversation with Sam. All right. Today on the podcast, I have someone who I've been a fan of for a while, been reading his content. We're in a engaging Slack community together. I was going through a big hire and he was kind enough to show me how he's made some hires in the world of sales and biz dev. And so he's been super helpful. But today we have Sam Shepler on. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. We have a lot we're going to talk about. This idea of a launchpad business. You've acquired a company, a couple companies. So this idea of acquisition entrepreneurship. But before we even get into it, could you introduce yourself and give a little background of what you've been up to? Yeah, absolutely. So going back to college, I got the entrepreneurship bug when I read the four hour work week, just like a lot of people, right? I was like, oh, this is like a different path. I don't have to necessarily follow the default path. I basically randomly you know, ended up working for an entrepreneur during college. I worked for a guy who ran a, a big e-commerce Halloween store. And I was just like his like intern slash like do anything. And honestly, just seeing how entrepreneurship was this incredibly intellectually stimulating puzzle and challenge. Like I just loved it. Also, frankly working for him. I was like, this guy has a multi-million dollar business. He's a smart guy, but all this stuff is doable. That kind of you know, gave me some confidence. I was like, okay, there's no reason I, I can't do this. And then basically started out just doing whatever I, I could. And my skill set and my background was video production. I was actually going to school for film at the time. And I'd grown up in Vermont making snowboarding videos. So like I had the beginning of, of like a valuable skill, which is something I think is so crucial. It's like, always understanding like when you're starting from zero, it's like step one is how can you build valuable skills? <laughs> you know what I mean? And then basically at the end of college had me and two of my close friends, we had basically started a video production company like accidentally and had enough customers to just go straight into that. That was around 2012. We grew that for four years, just a generalist agency, a lot of ups, a lot of downs, 
experienced the pitfalls of being a generalist agency and the sort of stress that can bring and not being able to remove myself from the business at all. I'm not to mention there's so many things I just didn't know at that point, but basically we agreed we can't do this anymore. And also like co-founder relationships is tough. That's another thing. So like things were good. I think we were almost close to a million run rate at that time. And we're like, all right, let's get this aqua hired basically sell the company. We, we managed to do that. It was a, a pretty good outcome, honestly, for a first go at it. We sold the company to a, a large you know, national PR firm. We positioned it as you want, you're growing in video production, just do like this bolt-on acquisition of us, get our customers, get our team instead of hiring piecemeal. That's another thing, whether you're like buying or selling a company, it's, it's all about like the positioning and there's like the story that you tell around it. So we got that done, ended up leaving that company about less than a year into it. I just wanted to do my own thing again. And uh, then I was like, okay, like, how can I maybe do something a bit more productized? So I thought about, okay, like of all the video projects that we were doing at our more generalist agency, if I was going to map out what is the most valuable to the customer and then also the most scalable and like, where is the intersection of something that's extremely valuable to the customer and also relatively scalable that I can put a process behind it as well as like repeatable. So that's how I ended up with customer testimonial videos. I found that they were valuable, repeatable, and relatively scalable. And then I, in 2018, started Testimonial Hero. Basically have grown that over the past, I guess, four going on five years now. Honestly, it's grown bigger and faster than I thought, particularly in, in the last couple of years. And we can you know, get into why that might be the case. And yeah, oh yeah, then recently, you know, installed a general manager, have a fantastic GM, Kevin. He's my GM, he's, he's fantastic. And that's a new step in the journey is that I'm pretty new into. Like I just started that at the beginning of 2022. So I'm about a quarter into this new role where like I have a GM and in theory should be stepping back <laughs> a bit more. Dude, that's a, there's so much good stuff there. And so first, one call out is you want to have a key skill to use to launch something. And I will say people want to hate on service businesses and agencies, and it's easy to, it's not a scalable as SaaS, but it is the quickest thing you can do to make a dollar. Like you can go to LinkedIn right now and be like, I have a video production agency who wants to work with me. And if you have a decent reputation, you could close someone on the spot. So that's your entry point. You get this up to like a million bucks, but when you're a journalist agency, it's hard to really scale when it's not repeatable. It's a lot of custom work. But you did something really well where I don't think a lot of people would be able to do that aqua hire where you talk about you found the right partner and were able to position to them in a, a way that's beneficial for them. Were you proactive in finding the buyer or did they find you? So I was proactive. First, I built a prospect list. Like who would be good prospects to go out and, and basically pitch this? And then I sent a cold LinkedIn message to not like the CEO, but like someone who I knew would have the CEO's ear and also would have a higher chance getting back to me. I think it was one of them. And I basically pitched it just straight up in that message. And exactly how I went about it is exactly like why they did it. And the key thing, though, is I was paying attention and I had been following them. I had this hypothesis for multiple years that if we were ever going to sell the company, this is one of the companies that we would sell to. And because I saw that we were actually starting to compete with them in some cases, I saw that they were you know, traditionally a PR firm. They're working on building this video capacity. So when I went to pitch them, they were like, okay, yeah, 
you're correct. Your analysis is spot on. We are trying to do more with video and can't argue with your logic. So yeah, I think that's exactly how I went about doing it. And that the key is just like any sale, right? It's like the more you can demonstrate that understanding of what their goals are, the better the conversation is going to go. Dude, that's so impressive. I'd love to see that cold email that essentially turned into them buying your company. But it's the fact that you knew them, you knew what they cared about, and you could play to either like their hopes or even their fears of what they're trying to do going forward. And you don't have to get into the financials, but like people that are looking to sell their business, can you speak to anything around the terms? Like, was it straight up cash or did you have an earnout, or did you have like golden handcuffs where you had to stay on for a certain amount of time? Yeah, for sure. I was almost going to go on LinkedIn and see if I still have the message. And I'm uh, sure I do. <laughs> I can probably find it. But yeah, so again, like this was definitely an acquire hire and not a straight up acquisition. So like it was, I'll, I'll speak to the, the acquire hire situation and then I'll speak to what you might be able to expect in a more normal situation. What, what I was looking for was a couple of things. Like one, a little bit of money. Great. Like the most money we can get, the better. But I was also looking for a good soft landing and frankly, like something that's good for my entrepreneurial story at the time, right? I think that that was like important to at least get some notch on my belt. In our situation, basically, it was an earnout kind of component for sure. We got comped on basically like revenue targets if we accomplished them. And that was like what our bonus was tied to. And, that, 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 and so it was like totally possible, like we couldn't, we wouldn't achieve the earnout, But Another benefit at that time, frankly, was like we were a couple of years out of college. We weren't really paying ourselves like all that much. So it was like a pretty cool, like, all right, we're going to get six figure salary. And that was cool. Really exciting at the time as well. Totally. And just to go through that rep of starting something, selling it. And that's really exciting experience to have at that phase of your career. But you see, and I feel like, like myself as an agency owner, we see it as well. There can be great things about that big agency model, whereas you're journalists and doing custom work, but it can be exhausting. It can be really tough to do stuff that's always cost custom. Whereas you now have this path of productized service and you've started to hit on some of those like best practices for it. But if you were starting a productized service today, can you hit on what are the key things you want to have in place? Because you already said some that I want to make sure people like heard you say, like for the client, what is the most valuable to them, but also scalable to you, but also what's repeatable? Because with productized service, it's all about that retention and having recurring revenue come in, what are other must-haves you'd want to have in place when starting a productized service? Yeah. So other must-haves, I think, first and foremost, I like to look at like the overall like market timing and understand like how can I ride like a wave, whether that is like a wave of everyone's using Webflow, like we can build our productized service around like building people great Webflow sites, or it's more of like a thematic wave around like no one's reading in case studies anymore. We all need video testimonials, which is obviously more of my approach. So I got, first and foremost, always like to think about, okay, why now? How is there a wave behind this idea? Then I also like to think of what is like the average order value? And is it significant? Because this is also like something that a lot of people think productized services and they think really cheap monthly subscription for unlimited offshore labor doing menial tasks. And there's a reason for that. Like a lot of the earliest productized services were unlimited like WordPress bug fixes for 99 bucks a month. But I think 
now we've moved into you know what I call like productized era 2.0, where like you can ha- have, and I would argue you should have a, a more premium productized service because in, in for the reason that average order value is so important to me is because as you, Jim, like your AOV really dictates the marketing strategies and channels that you can run profitably. And if you don't have a good AOV, you better be super happy to build an organic audience and be really good at it. And that's very hard. I'm impatient. I want to be able to do things that for me, like support, you know, outbound sales teams as well as sales calls. So another thing that I think was like productized 1.0 was don't sell a service without having to hop on a sales call. My perspective is like sell a service that easily supports the economics of a sales call. So that that's super important. Also, just going back to do I understand the market and also like why me in general? Like I like to do things that I have like a competitive advantage in. So like most of the time, I would guess if I start any other product or services, they're just going to be in video because I have a huge you know competitive advantage because I just kind of wired for video. Like I've always loved it. That being said, I think maybe for folks, they don't have that very specific thing. In a couple months or like a year, you can become really like top 10% in anything. If you put in a lot of work, there's all the information is out there. And then the last thing I'll say is I always think about like, how can I layer on different expertise to really form a really unique competitive mix? So like there's this concept, I think it's called like talent stacking. The creator of Dilbert kind of, you know, coined it. He's like, I'm not the best cartoonist in the world, but I'm actually the best like cartoonist who also worked in corporate America and like understands that. And like, I'm pretty funny. So all of a sudden, like you get like smash hits because he's like really like layered on some like unique mix. So like for me, I'm not the best videographer in the world, but I actually really understand B2B sales and marketing and kind of always gravitated to that. Already right there, you have a pretty unique mix because a lot of video producers and video editors and video creatives, like they're not you know necessarily close to world-class B2B marketers. And, and I would consider myself at that level. So basically it's like, how can you build these really unique combinations that actually make you so different? And, and there's a lot we could you know, dig into there, but that's uh, really helpful way that I think of it. I, I love that idea of talent stacking because it can be a lot of pressure to be like, oh, I'm doing video work. I have to be the best video editor in the world. No, you, you can kind of niche down and like, where else are you strong? And if you combine those, you become this little unicorn in this space where you can really thrive. Because I think people sometimes aren't even aware of where they have strengths until they have go through an exercise like that to figure it out. That's a really good call out. And you've been very open as far as like with Test Panel here, you've grown it from zero to four million in four years, you've installed your GM. And you've also written about this idea of this like founder sales bottleneck. Can you just talk about what you've learned growing to that scale? Because here you initially had this agency, it was tough, you like you got it to seven figures, but now you have this productized service where you've 4X that. I'd love to know like what worked to drive new customers and then also the inflection point of hiring a GM because I'm trying to fire myself from different tasks. I'm very interested in to learn that. So two questions and one there. So I think one of the big keys that was just like the business model. And so we grew from a million to 3.4 million. Like I think 2020, we did like a million and like 2021, we did uh, 3.4. And one of the reasons was 
we basically, at that point, launched uh, a new product around remote testimonial videos. And of course, in 2020, that was when we had the COVID pandemic. And so remote was critical, right? Like actually before COVID, our business model was more of like a global network Uber for video testimonials, your in-person videographer shows up at your office. And like, actually, even that I think is worth noting because in the agency, we were literally flying around to film. You know, I mean, that was that that's like, that's what agencies do. Usually they're like, oh, you hire us. We're going to, we're going to fly there and we're going to make it great. And it's going to be expensive for you. And, but it's going to be good. And then basically like that was a huge scale bottleneck for so many reasons. We can't be in two places at once. So like when I started Testimonial Hero, basically I just thought of, okay, what are all the scale bottlenecks and how can we, you know, engineer the business model to, you know, minimize that? That was one thing. And then when COVID happened, we made the best of that challenging situation and did the kind of obvious thing, which is launch the product that fit in that new situation. So like that absolutely contributed to so much growth and like, that I think it just underscores how important timing. And I think there's a lot of luck in that, but you also need the awareness to capitalize when you see those opportunities. And so I think, yeah, timing and thinking about how you can make a better business model. And then just from the sales and marketing side and the founder sales bottleneck, we've done you know probably more with outbound sales than probably any other product or service or agency that I'm aware of. Like I think last year, probably about over a million of our revenue came from you know leads that we sourced outbound, and we can get into that. One of the reasons that we were able to do that also because we had a productized service, and we were able to pitch a very specific offering to a very specific pain point because it's really hard to do good outbound for a you know generalist agency. Now you can always have a you know, generalist agency, and you can go outbound and present like one of your you know, core like signature solutions. But basically, yeah, like we just we just went super aggressive with outbound, and that's another thing that like when I see something that works, I don't like to exit. I literally will ten exit until it stops working. And like it took me a while to figure that out because I thought like doing more of something when it was working was like doing twice as much. But like when you have something that's working, I realize there's no participation trophies for using more marketing channels. If you have a channel that's working, don't stop and scale it up as hard as far as you can until it stops working. And that was like what we did. Of course, all these things are arbitrage opportunities in a sense. I think there maybe the spam filters have improved. And nowadays, I'm not sure like we we could have done what we did, but we're launching another cold email campaign. So we will see and we'll see very shortly. Sorry, General. Let me jump in there because you said a quote that I think I need to turn into a poster in my office. You don't get any participation trophies for standing up multiple marketing channels. I'll have to go back and pull it. But I could not agree with that more. So many times companies, they have one thing that kind of works. They're like, oh, wait, but we got to launch Pinterest ads or we've got to launch LinkedIn ads or we got to do whatever. Like, no, it's squeezed the most out of that. And you've generated a million from cold outreach. So many people tried that and failed. What are some tips you would give? Because you sold your company through cold email with the LinkedIn message. Any like best practices or recommendations on that? It's a couple of things. When cold outreach isn't working for people, it's hard because there's so many variables. But a few of the variables is like the offer is not good enough or like they're not segmenting the market the right way. Like 
they're selling something to, you know, too broad a market where they need a specific cold email campaigns to each persona. There's the copywriting element of it. And that's definitely like one of my strengths is copywriting, I would say. More specifically with cold email, you really have to, or at least what we've done is we don't like, I hate cold emails when they try to be clever and assumptive. And that's like a lot of cold emails that we all get. Basically, we just say, hey, here's what we can do for you. We've done it for 300 plus other companies, including these companies. Then we have a line that probably addresses whatever you know question or objection they might have at that point. Like for us, it's like we can do this on site or remotely with just 45 minutes from your customer. Great. Like just the most common objection. And then follow it up with usually a pretty soft call to action, especially if someone's actually interested, like what do they realistically want to do at this point? Do they want to jump on a call immediately? Probably not. So we don't usually push for a call. We try to just push for something that will start a conversation. Now we have the infrastructure to nurture those leads with our sales development reps. So like a lot of people can't take that long game because they maybe they don't have the infrastructure to do that. So like there, there's other aspects of this, but yeah, I think it's mostly having a good offer and not being trying to be too clever and, and just respecting the, the people that you're emailing, you know, time and also respecting their intelligence. Totally agree. I get so turned off from those, but I mean, we've hired services and people from cold email when it does exactly what you say. You've clearly figured out how to acquire and retain customers. You've now done something where you've been able to create a business that can run without you and you've hired a general manager. Can you talk through that experience? What has worked and not worked to do that? Cause that's so hard for people to give up their baby and to trust that it'll run the way you want it to run. Yeah, absolutely. I'll just tell a quick story. So this summer, my wife and I had our first kid and yeah, I was able to take two months off for paternity leave and that was amazing. Honestly, that's one of my proudest accomplishments as an entrepreneur, as a service-based business owner, like just getting the business to the point where it could do that. And that is, I think it's, it's important for people to realize like it's totally possible especially with the right degree of productization. And honestly, it's the right team, right? So like that is, it's all about the people that you have and actually having a management layer because otherwise it's impossible. Regardless if if you get to the GM point, and regardless if anyone's listening to this gets to that point, it's like, think about, you know, building more of of a leadership team and quality of life will be increased so much. And then in terms of things I learned, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. I think like for us, we we promoted from within. That's my only experience. But I think that works a lot better in, in general, because I think it would just be really hard. It can be really hard to find someone from the outside at the right price who can just hop into the seat and perform. It's just, you might find them, but it might take a couple of tries. So like first and foremost, I would say, ideally make it like a promote from within situation. And it was a conversation that my GM and I, you know, we had been having for you know over a year before. So it was like an ongoing thing. You know, I asked him over a year before, or maybe even like a year and a half. And I was like, hey, would this be something that you'd, you'd be interested in? And he was like, yeah, I'd be really interested in that. And then we slowly just worked towards that, giving him more responsibility. And, and obviously he did a fantastic job and demonstrated that you know, he was ready. I think some things that maybe didn't, or some speed bumps or like some challenges or like once it was officially in place, I definitely underestimated, and I wasn't on paternity leave. I definitely underestimated the kind of the vacuum of not being quite as needed. I think 
it's just like inevitable. That's like a, a champagne problem in, in a lot of ways. But definitely, yeah, it will be kind of weird. And, and you have to figure out like you re-analyze your relationship like to the business. That being said, you know, now our head of marketing actually just left a couple of weeks ago. So like right now, I'm like, oh, I'll put on that hat again. In the meantime, while we find that person. So now I'm like, I'll happy again, I have something to do. The other thing, huge learning was we thought we had the right KPIs in place in general for the business. But we just learned, you know, pretty recently, we're like, we were using our P&L as like the scoreboard. But like, you can't really run your business. Can't your P&L is not actually a scoreboard, like you, you need the right, you know, leading indicators. And you need to like watch those metrics like a hawk. And we definitely got a little caught off guard on some things because we were looking at the wrong stuff. And now we were like, oh, shit, we know actually what we were supposed to be looking at. It sounds obvious, but and everyone hears it like, oh, you got to have the right KPIs, got to have the right metrics. But like we thought we did. And then we actually had to turn the dial a little bit. So, yeah, that, that's probably one of my biggest learnings. That's a great call on leading indicators versus lagging indicators. Right. Like with our agency, we're looking at how many client calls we're doing, how many leads have come in to like project the pipeline. And it's a little tough with clients where we'll be looking at like, MPS and the just like performance of how ads and CRO is doing, but I could not agree more with that. But yeah, you got some champagne problems if you're like, oh, what to do with my time because the company's running so well. So I, I have very uh, little sympathy for you. That's amazing. So one thing that we're circling in on is you've done something that people probably aren't even familiar with this phrase, but you've been able to build a really cool portfolio of companies and just a nice kind of like career with this idea of doing it on the back of a launch pad business. So before we even go down what you've done with that, can you just define what is a launch pad business anyways? And how is that different from say a, a lifestyle business? Yeah, I think like the main thing with uh, a launch pad business is that it exists to give you a lot of options, a lot of runway, and you know, just the ability to try other things. If you want, like you can take swings and make some other asymmetric bets. I'm starting to do that with an infor information product course business. And I have a couple other things that are cooking as well. So I first heard of this term, you know, from Andrew Wilkinson from Tiny. And he is obviously, I'm sure he's familiar to many of the, the listeners. And basically, like the way that he explained it, I was like, the first thing you should probably do is make sure you have something to cover your expenses and gives you runway to like keep getting at bats, right? And the reason why I think it's like a powerful idea is it reminds us as entrepreneurs that you don't have to try and shoot the moon with your first business or like any business. And you can like first establish the launch pad. Then if you want to launch some rockets off it, great. But you can do that and you have like, you know, it's just less risky, right? And instead of trying to do that moonshot right away. And then also, I think service-based businesses can make fantastic launchpad businesses because like you were saying earlier, they're, it's just, they're so much easier to generate revenue with very quickly. So basically, I'm a big fan of launchpad businesses. And I think it's service businesses sometimes don't get the love that they should, but they make a great launchpad to either keep growing that business and maybe it can be a lot bigger than, than you think. But also, yeah, to take those other other swings and try some other things as well. That's such a good call because, man, if I would have had to 
with my first crack at a company, go for the moon or the huge idea, there's no doubt it'd be an epic failure. So it's like the first time you're being a business owner, go for something where the likelihood of success is much higher. And it might not have a billion dollar outcome, but it can have a nice seven or eight figure outcome. So like you said, the service-based business is a great launch pad because likelihood of success is higher. It's not capital intensive and it can cash flow, which kind of leads to your point of you are able to break away from the nine to five, have this launch pad. You can then make cash flow to invest in other things. And that's where like you and I have to all of a sudden become good capital allocators. Like, okay, wait, crap. Where do you put this money so it can help get to that next thing to generate um, a better ROI? And so I'd be interested because you've done some really smart things where you have your productized service working really well, but you've started to make bets and other things. Some you're public about, some you just said you're working on. Can you give more color on how you think of this like stair step model with Launchpad, like what you're looking to invest in and do next? Yeah. And I love that the way you put it on in terms of just breaking free from the nine to five. Uh, I think that's exactly it. Step one is if you want to be an entrepreneur is break free from the the nine to five and get that launch pad. And well, to be honest, like I'm still like pretty bullish on testimonial hero. And like, I do think there is a, a potential that we might be like, well, which is the great thing about a launch pad business is like, you can always turn the launch pad in, into a rocket if you want. You have the option, right? Whereas like a lifestyle business is like, small business that supports your lifestyle, but like probably doesn't have a lot of scalability and like nothing you know wrong with that either. It's just like, I think that is a characteristic of launchpad businesses is you, know, you have more optionality to scale up further if you want it. So yeah, definitely considering a few things, what would it look like to take Testimonial Hero to a much, much um, larger size? Obviously that would require a lot of my attention and sort of would uh, be deviation from the launch pad. But in the meantime, I actually acquired a course around productized services at the end of February. It's called Productize and Scale, productizeandscale.com. It was a fantastic course business founded by a guy named Brian Castle. He had grown it and his story is fantastic. Well, he had his launch pad businesses, their productized services. He ended up selling them, took a couple swings at at, at SaaS companies. And because he had the service, you know, launch pad, like he was able to try, I think he tried like three or four SaaS companies and like finally, or this, his newest one, Zip Message is like taking off. So I think that's a great launch pad case study. So he really wanted to go in on SaaS and he actually saw me tweeting about, you know, productized services more. And then, and he actually approached me. He's like, hey, I saw you, you've been talking, you know, a little bit more about productized services. Would you be interested in, acquiring this. And I was basically just like, yes, let's do it. I'd always wanted to dip my toe into the sort of like information product world. And this is this has been a great way to do it. It's great to get some of the benefits, but without just skipping steps. And that's what your any sort of acquisition you do, you're just you get to skip some steps along the way in exchange for, of course, like the cost and the investment in it. Dude, that's super exciting. And I want to get into like why you chose an information e-course business because I've, I have some friends that have done extremely well with those. And some of them are like, oh, there's so many courses and options out there. 
Is that right? But when you look in the margins, it's quite powerful because your margins after you make it are very good. It's even better than a SaaS company because you don't have these big servers and and dev costs tied to it. So talk about what was it a no brainer? What were your concerns with acquiring this? Because obviously like this company was attached a little bit to the previous founder. However, it wasn't his name. It's productize and scale something that very much aligns with what you do, but go through like your thought process, like what's a good decision? What were your concerns? Yeah. So I think first on on the business model, I think, yes, like in terms of if if you don't have a SaaS, if you like background, I think information products are probably like the next logical step. And I actually think it's really hard to have a great SaaS product if you don't have a technical background or a huge audience or like you you know, have some unfair advantage. And and I personally, I don't feel I have an unfair advantage for SaaS. So I was like, how can I get SaaS-like economics? And for sure, the answer is like information products and also like just seemed like a fun challenge. In terms of how I thought about it, I thought about it in in really in a way of like, how can I, what could go wrong here? (laughs) You know, I like, and what's the downside? And is the downside acceptable? And what's the upside and just made sure all those things were fine. And honestly, it just, it just made a lot of sense. And I just couldn't see, I was like, I know I can make this work because it, it, it just dovetails so well with, with my experience more strategically. Like the course I think right now is selling for a little under 500 or something like 497. I plan on eventually really expanding it, adding more live components, more of like a, the hybrid, like in course mastermind. Or, or like a semi like cohort based course approach and adding a lot more value in you know, focusing a lot more on delivering a real outcome and charging, making the investment much greater. And that's basically like how I think about it. I think the 497 course is great, especially if you have a huge audience. Uh, but in terms of getting people results, I, I just know that people are going to get better results when there is a somewhat of a more kind of hands-on component. And there's a lot of interesting new kind of business models actually that are emerging there. Cohort-based courses where there's like, you, know, you go through the course live and maybe it's like an eight or 10-week course and you you know attend the trainings live and then there's a community. More broadly, I am like, I'm excited by the business right now, but like, I'm much more excited by like th- those more newer models that mix the kind of live as well as a video course. That's a really good call out because there's already an amazing infrastructure here, a course that people are paying money for, but there isn't a cohort-based course. He hasn't done too many experiments with pricing to get it to the 999 level or above. And with cohorts, geez, you can get into the thousands. So when you see this like green space or green field of where you can go after, it's like you have a great foundation where it's Yes, obviously anything could drop, but you have all these things you could test. And I think when you look at an overall market, like it's only going to get bigger as people are like breaking out of the nine to five, doing their own thing and productized services being an option. So I'm a big fan of trying to ride the waves that are that are getting bigger. I'm a little bit obsessed with this model. There's two guys we've had on the podcast, one Tommy Griffith, mm-hmm. who has ClickMinded. Uh, he used to run SEO at Airbnb, and now he's got ClickMinded. He's tripled his revenue with some of the stuff they've done with selling templates and whatnot, in addition to their course, which that kind of blew me away. And then uh, Craig Swanson, he just sold a, 
a course company for eight figures and he's done it like 10 times and he gave his playbook. But no, man, I think you're you're very much playing in the right space with your skill set. Very cool. Yeah, I think what I literally I think wrote that down in in my Evernote. I was like, click minded for product services. Yeah, I love what Tommy Griffith has done over there. Like super smart uh, on so many ways and how he bundles the courses and uh, yeah. Yeah, talk about inspired by the four hour work week. That guy, I think, is working four hours a month. Literally, he tracks it and he does, he doesn't boast too much about it. But I, I try and talk with him once a quarter and it really pains me because I'm in deep <laughs> agency mode where you know how that goes, yeah. where I'm not working four hours a month. It's a little bit more. But dude, I just love what you're doing. Um, you want to tease anything else? Because you mentioned you're working on some other stuff. That's a lot, though. You've, you've got your productized service. You have the course business. You've got your foundation of the launch pad. Anything else that's top of mind? Yeah. So I, one thing uh, I have been doing is some you know, one-on-one coaching with founders who want to get out of that founder sales bottleneck, mostly agencies and productized services. So I've helped a couple people now basically like hire their sales rep, hire a sales rep and get themselves out of, you know, founder sales. I'm doing it like one-on-one right now to really make sure I can deliver, you know, great results, but eventually and like understand the commonalities. And obviously it's something I've done, but I want to see how it works for other people as well. And I, that might turn into a standalone course, um, you know, or, or standalone cohort based course. So that, and that's something I'm passionate about because one of the guys that I helped Carl over at Draft Dev, awesome product service. He was tweeting the other day. He's like, man, like the biggest lifestyle unlock is like not having to be responsible for sales calls. Because if you think about it, like if you're if you have yeah, to be so responsible, you're, you're yeah. speaking to the audience, man. Yeah, yeah, you know exactly right. And I know you're also. This is how we connected. We, we've been chatting about this. Yeah, so that's something that I'm super into. Maybe that'll turn into a course or or something. Yeah, man, I think that's a course that people would pay a high dollar for. And I love these courses where you're you're niching down. People are afraid to go specific on it, but you're hitting on a pain point that is so real that people are like, take my money. Because if you solve this, it's a huge unlock. No, man, that's really cool. And the thing that you're doing that's really smart, too, is a lot of the services and companies you're standing up are very much aligned. So the personas overlap. So as you build an audience you have multiple options of what they could go after and do. No, man, very cool. And so there, there's a question I always like to ask and end with, but you know, as you look at your career to date, what's the nicest thing anyone's done for you professionally? That's a great question. So the first thing that, that came to mind is that I was telling the story of my, the first entrepreneur that I, I worked for, this guy named Mark Arvanigian. And he, one time in my you know, video agency, pretty early, like we were like pretty close to missing payroll. And I was like, Hey, I know you need some video like for your business. Can you just like buy something like we need to make payroll? And he's like, yeah, sure. Like I'll buy, I'll buy something. We'll figure out like, I'm sure I need a video made. And basically like he basically just did that for me. And he's like, we didn't even have like a proposal or a topic. He's like, yeah, I'll I'll buy something. Like we'll figure out what it is. I, I trust you. So that would absolutely be like the nicest thing. That's such a great story. Like, we just please buy something so we can have money in our bank account. <laughs> yeah. And he obviously, like, I had worked for him. I had made him 
when I worked for him, I made him a lot of money and we had a great relationship. So he was more than happy to do it. But yeah, I I think of that and definitely always appreciate it. That's cool, man. That's why it's so important. Like the places you work, you never want to burn those bridges, always have good relationships. At the end of the day, it's a relationship game, but that's such a cool story. But dude, Sam, man, this is awesome. I love everything you're doing. I can't thank you enough for even helping me as we hired our our VP of BizDev, which makes sense. That could be another venture for you. But if people want to learn more about what you're doing or your companies or follow your content, where can we point them? Yeah, yeah, this has been a blast. You know, Twitter is probably the best way to kind of get in touch with me. I started to be more active and share more on Twitter. It's just my name, Sam Shepler, at Sam Shepler. And then... There's links in my profile to the course, but you can also visit the course on you know productized services that we talked about. But you can also visit that directly at productizeandscale.com. And, and Sam's Twitter is really good. I definitely recommend you guys following it. If you want some free tips and advice, that's what I do. That's where I get all my news is Twitter. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. But Sam, dude, thank you so much, man. This was a blast. Likewise. Yeah, Jim, this was an absolute pleasure. I love your podcast. Um, I listen to every episode myself, so it's great to get on and share uh, a little bit of my story. Yeah, man. Well, we're going to have to bring you back after you do your next acquisitions and everything you're doing, but thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But... I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.